The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. This morning we're looking at the 13th Psalm, and this is the main idea of the text, that difficult seasons give way to rejoicing for those who trust in the Lord. So here's what we're acknowledging this morning, and you'll see this as we read and unfold the text, that difficult seasons come in all of our lives. For some, and at times they're more intense, some carry a longer duration than others, but what this text is acknowledging is that difficulty does come in the life of the believer. And this text reveals the honest and forthright way that David deals with this difficult season before the Lord. Now, here's what I recognize before I read the text and pray. This teaching of the scripture here is somewhat, and I would even argue for most, is antithetical to American Christianity. There's a new version that has been bought is that Christians never experience difficulty. That that might be, that must be sin or you're not saved or something. Folks, that's just not true. This is gut level teaching from the Bible. Thank God that he is so honest with us in the scripture. So with honesty and forthrightness, let us read the 13th Psalm. Will you stand please? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O oh Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize today that you are the Lord our God. You and you only are the God of steadfast love. In you and you only can our hearts rejoice. You are worthy of our worship and our praise. Yet, Lord, we thank you that this psalm gives evidence of what is happening in the hearts and lives of some who have walked into this room today in the midst of a tremendous season of difficulty. So whether they have articulated or not are asking, how long, O oh Lord? So God, I pray now that you would take your word and that you would apply it to our hearts and lives, either in this moment for what we need or that you would prepare us for what is yet ahead in our lives. Blessing God, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So not out loud, I just want you to put yourself in one of two camps. Most of us are extremists. So when difficulty comes, we end up in one of two places. Some in this room are emotional people. So difficulty comes and everybody around you knows you're in the midst of difficulty. 
You show emotion with tears. You talk about it. Sometimes what you say doesn't make any sense because you're just talking out of emotion. You just talk and talk and talk. Others of you are the direct opposite. You're stoic. You're rational. You turn inward. You ask questions. How to get here? What can I do to get out? You make lists. Now, here's what's interesting about this psalm. David is both emotional and rational. He doesn't pick an extreme. He doesn't go one way or the other. You see both evidenced in how he comes before the Lord. So let's begin. David questions the Lord concerning his long season of difficulty. You notice right away in the first two verses, the repetition of what phrase? What is it? How long? It's four times. How long? So this proves right off the bat that the Bible is not forbidding repetition. Jesus forbids vain repetition. Vain repetition is copying the pagans who say a mantra over and over with the idea that this deity is going to listen because you keep repeating the same phrase over and over and over and over and over and over and over. There are times for repetition in our praying. And the repetition here is, how long, O Lord? So you hear anguish and you hear an intense desire that the Lord God would deliver. So the four how longs is a, an effective way of saying that this struggle has been going on for some time in David's life, which proves what I've learned my timetable and the Lord's are very different. So unless you construe what I'm teaching and what the Bible's teaching here, though we're to be bold and honest in our praying, we never stomp our foot and tell God what to do. We come to the Lord. So let's deal with these questions. How long Oh Lord, will you forget me forever? The implication here is that there has been this uninterrupted period where it appears to David as if God has forgotten him. Now, what I noticed right off the bat is what I've noticed in my life is the paradox. It goes like this. If God has really forgotten David, why is David talking to God? Do you see the paradox? He's telling God, you've forgotten me. So if you can tell God that, then God has not forgotten you. Job does the same thing. Job 23, behold, I go forward, he is not there. Backward, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, I do not see him. So here's what David's saying. I mean, Job's saying, whichever way I look, I don't see God. Then in verse 10 of Job 23, he says, but he knows the way I take. So what's Job saying? I might not see the Lord, whichever direction I look, but God knows what's happening to me. God knows the direction of my life. In other words, even though it appears that God has forgotten you, he never has. 
Second question, how long will you hide your face from me? Or, or to say it this way, are you turning away from me, God? Now, folks, you, you got to understand the implication of this. In the Old Testament, for God to turn his face away is a sign of curse. It's not just ignoring, this is serious. God, have you turned your face from me? The opposite is true. Numbers, 20, Numbers 6, 24 and 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Here's what we gotta remember. That though his face appears to be hidden, God has not forgotten us even though he's articulating this, and it seems that he has, we gotta remember what the scripture teaches in other places. 2 Timothy 2.13 comes to my mind. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remember, David starts by praying to the Lord. His name reveals who he is. He is the covenant-keeping God. He will not forget his people. He will not turn from his people. The third question now turns away from the Lord and turns more inward for David. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Now, here's what I've learned about myself. I'll just invite you into my world. And I dare say there are a bunch of you in this room. I am my own worst enemy. I will turn inward in my mind and sink myself into depression and worry and anxiety and stress. Then I read this sentence one time. I'm going to quote him again in just a moment from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It just rocked my world. He said, most of our problems are we are listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. What do you mean? It means that we're listening to our own inward voice, our own inward conversation, and we're not listening to what God has said. We're not telling ourselves what God has said. We're not reading the scripture and speaking and meditating on the scripture into our own hearts and minds. We're taking our own counsel and we're bearing it down in our soul. And as a result, we have sorrow all day. Now, this is as old as the garden. Because when the evil one came to Eve, this was his first question to her. Did God really say? Really? Now, now Eve, let's be rational here. You, you really going to believe that stuff? What happens is we, we give in to our temperament. And the evil one, the adversary of our souls, he knows how to use it. Quoting Lloyd-Jones. He deals with us that we allow our temperament to control and govern us instead of keeping our temperament where it should be kept. There is no end to the ways the devil produces spiritual depression. We must always bear him in mind. We must always remember, he's whispering in our ear. Did, did God really say? The fourth question, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He's saying, my enemies are in my face. They're taunting me. They're laughing at me. They're pressing in on me. They're causing me grief and pain. They're threatening my very life. I'm languishing to the point it's hard to bear. 
Here's the argument. You're God, I'm your child. Why are the wicked dominating me? Why? And how long is this going to last? Now, let's step outside of the Psalm for a moment and and bring a, a more contemporary illustration. I want you to think of your spiritual hero the person you look up to the most spiritually in life. They may be, they may be dead. They, they may have already passed on. But I want you to think of the person you look up to the most spiritually. And, and let's imagine that once their life has passed, if they have not already, you're, you're working through their stuff and you find their journals, if they kept one. And you begin to flip through the pages of the journal and you, need, you start to see repeatedly pages like this. How long? How long is this going to continue? If you started reading this kind of gut level honesty in the person you admire the most spiritually, would your view of them go down? I go back to my opening thought. We've been taught that that's the case. That the true spiritually strong don't talk like this. They don't say these things. They don't admit these things. I'll ask you further. Have you ever expressed this kind of thing before God? Have you ever said it in prayer? Have you ever written it in a journal? Let's all just be honest here before I move on in the sermon. Whether you've ever said it or you've ever written it, you've all thought it. You've all thought, God, how long? Is this going to go on? So this begs a question. There's so what in every point today. Am I coming before the Lord honestly yet reverently during difficult seasons? Now note reverence. Our God is a consuming fire. You are not addressing an equal. How long, O Lord? Hebrews chapter four. I'm gonna work back and forth between the 13th Psalm and Hebrews. Hebrews chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help when? You could say in seasons of difficulty. In time of need. A period of need, not just the moment, a season. The confessing that we need grace, what we do not earn or deserve, or mercy. That means we're in a dangerous place and we can't help ourselves. Who are, who are then we, we coming to? We're coming to the high priest, that's Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Now this one whom we come to is sympathetic with our weakness. He understands us. 
He was tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. So as a result, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, to come to God and to make our cry. So let me say this clearly and boldly. To cry out when it appears God is hiding his face from you is not sinful. Here's how I can make such a claim. Because even the son of God himself on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore our sins. He carried our sorrows so we can take up his devotion in the day of trouble with humility and faith. We, dis- we guard our souls against the error of deciding that God's not going to deliver us. And we understand that his delay is not a refusal. We must give God his time. So the question is, how do we wait? The answer is, we must pray. David cries to the Lord for relief from his season of difficulty. The first part of the psalm is a lament. He's lamenting before God of what's true in his life. Now he comes to ask. It's honest and it's forthright. He argues from reason. He makes his petition with God. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In the midst of the difficult season of life, as the Lord appears silent, David prays, consider and answer me, Oh Lord, my God. And if you're underlining or making notes in your Bible, that phrase is significant. Oh Lord, my God. Here, David is clearly identifying the covenant keeping God, that his very name speaks to the unchanging nature of who God is, that God has established a covenant with David that from his throne, the Messiah is coming. The covenant he established with Abraham that from his seed, the Messiah is coming. God is a God of covenant who will not go back on the covenant that he has made. So here's what we got to realize. We cannot too often plead to our covenant relation to God. There are three requests. Consider is number one. You know what this literally means? Don't look away from me, God. Hear me, hear me. Consider what I'm saying. Answer me. Respond to me. Oh Lord, my God. Now let's just hit the pause button right there. I've had people say, I've been praying for such and such for years. God never has answered it. This possibly has. It's possible his answer is no. 
Brothers and sisters, here's what we got to realize. Jesus himself prayed in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. In prayer, we align ourselves with the word of God, with what God has revealed. We must pray with our Bibles open. Otherwise, we will pray according to our own will. And we'll spiritualize it and tag in the name of Jesus on the end of it and all sorts of things. We must pray according to the will of God. And when we pray that way, then we can expect God's response. Third request, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Quite often after the second service while I'm sitting out waiting to come in, somebody will walk by and say, you look tired, to which my answer is, I am. (laughs) David is not saying here, I'm tired. Here's what David's saying. David is saying, I am in a perilous place. I am dangerously exhausted. I'm about to die. I don't know if any of you have ever been present with someone who are coming to their last days, but one of the clear ways you can see that death is coming is in the eyes. This empty, hollow look comes. They languish away. They lose the sparkle, if you will, of life. And David is saying, I'm languishing away. I'm I'm about to die, God. Maybe this is one of those moments when Absalom has pursued him out into the desert and, and he's without food and water. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We just know it's a dangerous place he's at. Then he applies reason. Now watch this. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Here's what he's saying to God. What will it say about the Lord, Yahweh, if enemies conquer over me? It is not the Lord's will that the great enemy of our souls should overcome his children. He's saying that would dishonor God and cause the evil one to boast. Now, how can David pray this way? First, he understands God. He is the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. Second, David's praying based off of experience. Remember, the first time David really comes onto the scene, armies of Philistines, armies of Israel, they're separated in a valley between them. Every day they send out Goliath. He taunts the army of God. Nobody will come out and fight him. David shows up with some lunch for his brothers. He looks out there and says, what is happening? They try to suit him up. He ends up going out with a sling, slingshot and some stones and defeats Goliath. Why does that happen? It happens because of this statement. In the midst of the interchange as to what's going on, David says to the king and to the people, the army of Israel, this, this question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's not saying, I've got the power to go out here and fight him. What David is saying is, God's going to conquer him. 
And with a sling and a stone, a 12-year-old boy goes out and conquers Goliath. It is God himself who takes care of his people in the face of enemies. He is the one who prevails. So here's my question. Am I praying specifically and biblically during difficult seasons? Back to Hebrews chapter five. Now, if I did not say this already, Hebrews was written to believers, Jewish background believers who are considering going back to Judaism because it's gotten hard being a Christian. So there's this appeal to this season of difficulty, intense difficulty, far more than any of us have ever experienced in this room. He says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now your eyes need to fall on a couple of things here. Jesus prays with loud cries and tears. Now, if anybody should have rationally offered up a prayer, it should have been Jesus. He offers up a prayer with loud cries and tears to the one who's able to save him from death. Now, we're obviously referring specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane. But he comes with reverence. And then you have verse 8. Although he's a son, he learned obedience to what he suffered. Now, theologians have written books on that verse. What does that mean that the Son of God learned obedience? Now, I'm not going to try to explain that right now other than apply it to you. Here's what God is doing in your life in this season of difficulty. He is teaching you to trust him and obey him. Do you see there's kind of a recurring message going on in the Psalms here? That we're trusting and obeying God. Why? Because Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That means not only is Jesus going to save us from our sins, not only will Jesus deliver us from our present difficulties, Jesus will keep us forever. Amen. Jesus asked the question, what can men do to me? You know what the answer is? You might know what the answer is. They can kill you. That's the context when he asked the question. But here's what he means. They cannot take your soul. They cannot. They might damage you, hurt you. They cannot take your soul. This is from John Piper's book, When the Darkness Will Not Lift. We draw no deadlines for God. He hastens or delays as he sees fit. And his timing is all loving toward his children. And oh, that we may learn patience in the hour of darkness. I don't mean that we make peace with darkness. We fight for joy. But we fight as those who are saved by grace and held by Jesus Christ. What holds us and prompts us in our prayer is to know that through Christ, we have an eternal salvation, which brings joy. So the third thing you see in the psalm is that David rejoices in the Lord in the midst of, this, of his season of difficulty. So he has an internal questioning that leads to lamenting. The lamenting leads to pleading and the pleading breaks forth in rejoicing in his salvation. Verse five, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. 
If you're taking notes in your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline the phrase steadfast love. It's actually one word in the Hebrew, hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It's an important, crucial word to understand in the Old Testament. It means God's faithful covenant love. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So hesed is not merely love, it's loyal love. It's not merely kindness, it's dependable kindness. It's not merely affection, but it's affection that has committed itself. It is not simply love, but a love that sticks. It's a love that refuses ever to let go. So here's the flow of the psalm. Though not mentioned to the end, David from the very beginning is trusting in the unfailing love of God. That's what led him to lament. It's revealed in the trust in which he prays and now which he rejoices in, that in God's salvation, both what we have known and what we will know, he rejoices. Now notice this. My heart shall rejoice in what? What's the next word? Your salvation. Now, now it's very significant that this does not say, my heart shall rejoice in salvation as if we generally mean something here, it does not say also, my heart shall rejoice in my salvation. Here's one of the problems going on with American Christianity. I'm, I'm writing a lot about this right now and some things I'm working on. Is this autonomous idea that everything's about me. We've just adopted the culture and put Christian on top of it. Salvation is God's. I rejoice in your salvation. And when I say it that way, it, it means I'm not, I didn't bring anything to the table. First, I'm reminding myself that I, I had nothing to do with my salvation. Secondly, it means this. It's not just mine, it's ours. That God has granted his salvation to others is not just me. So I'm not just rejoicing on my own. I'm rejoicing in others because the Lord has dealt bountifully, completely it means. So here's my question. Am I rejoicing in the Lord's steadfast love and salvation through Christ? Am I rejoicing in the Lord's steadfast love and salvation through Christ? During difficult seasons. So as, as things are hard, am I rejoicing in this unceasing love and this promised salvation to be kept in Christ? Here's the perspective I take this morning. The greatest season of difficulty in my life, and this is true of every one of you, the greatest difficulty of season in your life was the season prior to you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Because here's what the Bible says was true of you. You were without hope and without God in the world. That's darkness. Now here's, here's the lie some of you believe. Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. No, you haven't. Here's the way you need to say it. I've been around Christians my whole life. All of us are lost and in need of a savior. All of us are in darkness and without God until we trust in Christ our Lord. So to the non-believer who has never trusted Christ and to the believer, the question is, what do you do in the midst of difficulty? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. And here's the simple answer. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm quoting Piper again. Christians in the darkness of depression may ask desperately, how can I know that I'm truly a child of God? They are not usually asking to be reminded that they are saved by grace through faith. They know that. They are asking, how can they know that their faith is real? God must guide us in how we answer. Knowing the person will help you know what to say. So the first thing you might say to that person or say to yourself, that God is saying, I love you and I will not let go of you. In those words, a person feels God's keeping presence, which they may not feel in any other way. The second thing we might say is this. Now listen to this argument. I desperately needed this the first time I ever read this. Stop looking at your faith and set your attention on Christ. Faith is sustained by looking at Christ crucified and risen, not turning from Christ and analyzing your faith. So what am I getting at? You get in this season of difficulty, the first question is going to fly into some of your brains. Am I really a Christian? You're not turn it in and look at yourself. You look to Christ, the founder and the what? Perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Now I'm breaking homiletic rule. Homiletics is the science of, of preaching. I'm gonna do two quotes back to back, sorry. This is Tim Keller from his little devotional. This is, he wrote one paragraph about the 13th Psalm. Now listen to this. Now turn back to the 13th Psalm because I'm coming right back there in just a second. So he's summarizing the song. Now track with us here. David is in agony and cannot feel the presence of God. He cries out that God has ignored his pain and his sorrow. It's almost a howl. And the fact that it is included in the Bible tells us that God wants to hear our genuine feelings. David never stops praying, however, and that is key. As long as we howl toward God and remember his salvation by grace, we will end at the place of peace. And here's how we do it, brothers and sisters. We hear Jesus pray, Psalm 13. So brothers and sisters, let us cast our eyes to Calvary. Let us look to the cross and hear the agonizing Savior how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And just pause right there. Jesus became the curse for you. God did turn his face from Jesus. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Anybody know the answer? Three days. Six hours and three days. And this covenant-keeping God broke forth from the grave to show us that it is his salvation and not ours. So we look to Christ and we trust in his steadfast love. We look to Christ and our hearts rejoice in his salvation. We sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Lord, I plead now for the man or woman who is in this place, who has never hoped or trusted in Christ. They may have associated with Christians their whole life, but they've never trusted in you. I pray that today they would repent of their sin and turn to Christ and trust you, the God of their salvation, the one who has accomplished it on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. And Lord, I pray for the believers in this room, those who are in the midst, who are up to their neck in sorrow and difficulty. I pray that they would look to Christ and trust in your eternal salvation. And Lord, that we would rejoice in you. Fall on this place, Spirit of God. Call sinners to salvation. And to those who are saved, call them to rejoicing. We plead and we pray now as we sing in Christ's name. The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org.